0: In 2007, the adult Sunday school class I was part of here at East Chestnut had a double inspiration. After working through the curriculum Second Mile, a peace journey for congregations, we took the name as our own and became known as the Second Mile Sunday School class. We also got fired up enough about creation care to write a letter to the church board asking that creation care be an explicit part of the church's long-term strategic plan. We made a bunch of practical and a few impractical suggestions, but the main point was asking our church board to help our church care better for the environment. More on that later. A few weeks ago, The Economist magazine showed up in our mailbox, as it does every week, Whoever designs the magazine's covers has quite a job, and it's usually kind of fun, skewering politicians and crafting verbal and visual puns. But this particular magazine cover must have terrified its designer. It certainly frightened me. It showed average world temperatures for the past roughly 150 years, shifting from blues for the cooler cooler years right up to pinks starting in the 1970s and crescendoing to brilliant reds in recent years. Climate change is by now as familiar as a well-worn pair of jeans, though way less comfortable. Many days I have a low-level a low level ache of awareness about creation's groanings, but this was an image that woke that ache and fanned it into a shriek of anxiety. This graph means that it's likely that bigger-than-expected changes are coming, and they're coming soon. We know a lot about how we got here. All along the way in our human history, we've chosen to pay attention to the fragments of the Bible like fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, and treated the earth and its creatures like a smorgasbord where we can pile our plates high as we extract and subjugate. We've given lesser status to verses that say things like, I establish my covenant with you and with every living creature that is with you. We've relegated to inspiring but lightweight poetry status the psalms that say, you made them all. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. In our quest for individual salvation, we've played down the verses that say, in Christ all things were created. What would our world be like today if Christianity and our Western societies would have chosen these latter verses to live by? It turns out that we humans are subject to the laws of nature, in spite of our supposed biblical mandate to dominate and subjugate, but we've gotten by thinking we're smarter and can think, plan, develop our way out of any environmental pinch. Now the stripes are mostly red, and I'm afraid. So what can we do? Working on this sermon helped me navigate into some less fearful waters. I'll share some rambling thoughts with you, recognizing that some may be truer and easier for me on some days than others, and that some might be a little unpopular. Here goes. One, keep sight of what we believe about God and about God being with us. While I don't believe that God will magically extract us from this treacherous time, I also don't think God will give up on us, even though we've really mucked things up. God understands suffering, forgiveness, and the need for hope. Two, expect to adapt to a lot of changes in the coming years. There are salient models for living and coping in the examples of our Anabaptist mothers and fathers who were burned and drowned until the survivors immigrated to other countries and reshaped their lives there. Even the trees and the spaces along our church's sidewalk teach us about surviving in adversity with their heavy exposure to vehicle exhaust and pinched roots that would make all of us long to take off our shoes. There will be deep pain and loss, scars, and the hope of new ways of doing things. Three, embrace creation as members of our larger community. Refuse to see other creatures and earth resources as commodities, but rather as a creation is us mentality. Be a companion or partner with all parts of the earth. We here at East Chestnut do a pretty decent job caring for each other. We honor each other's birthdays once we're well-aged and reach out to those who are sick. Can we enlarge the embrace of this caring spirit to include the trees around our church building that are cleaning our air and the birds that we're hearing from less and less? Four, care fiercely for creation. My personal fave, plant trees. And can we care so much about creation that we leave behind our addiction to perfect weed-free lawn or pass by the always-in-seasoned man- always season mangos and avocados in the market? How about air conditioning? Our need for climate control is calculated to add over 100 million tons of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere this year, as well as tons, tons of hydrocarbons that are even more dangerous. So... A shout-out to all of you who care enough about creation to put up with our sticky-hot Sunday morning services here. You East Chestnutters rock. Number five, acknowledge our sins. We are not in a position to claim any moral, environmental moral high ground. I have many sins to confess, but I'll share just one, a kind of big one with you. In a mini-sermon I gave here several years ago, I talked about the winter migration of monarch butterflies to certain mountain areas in Mexico. Well, the urge to see them for myself was too great, and February of this year, Daryl and I celebrated my 60th birthday with a a visit to these Mexico mountains. It was stunning seeing all these fragile creatures resting in dark clumps in the fir fir trees in the morning until the sun warmed them enough to take off in search of the day's supply of nectar. It's incomprehensible to understand how sequential generations make the annual round trip from Mexico to parts of the U.S. and Canada and back to Mexico again. We didn't just see thousands of monarchs, we heard them. It turns out that when they all take flight together, they make a sound like a rushing wind. Hoping you can hear it. It was awesome. My sin, my desire to see these beautiful creatures contributed in some way to their potential demise. The planes that we took to fly from Baltimore to Mexico sitting in back again disgorged at least 76,000 pounds of carbon into our atmosphere. Six, consider supporting our own creation care efforts here at East Chestnut. Looking back at our original request letter to the board in 2007, it's encouraging to see that we got a lot of what we asked for, tree planting in the parking lot, and an abiding understanding that that at congregational meals, we will BYOP, bring our own plates. We've connected with other churches to share hope and ideas. And just this week, our creation care committee met with an interfaith group to share our experiences here at East Chestnut and learn from others. The voluntary gas tax has brought thousands of dollars into Creation Care funds, allowing the group to install white rubber roofs, you can see on the beside the church building there, on both of our church office buildings and the chestnut housing buildings, adding insulation and planting dozens of trees in various parts of the city. So a little about the gas tax. This can be a self-imposed fee of, say, 50 cents a gallon for the gas we use in our vehicles. Some East Chestnuters keep track of how many gallons they buy. Others pitch in a regular monthly amount. It just gets put in the offering and earmarked. The point is that we recognize our implicit connection to climate change and contribute so that our church community can offer some reparations on our behalf. Please consider supporting East Chestnut creation care efforts in this way. Seven, be not discouraged. This is a really hard one for me. The scope of the problem is so big, and what I can do is so little. So let's try this. Apply the same optimism we use when we donate to MCC or Chestnut Housing. We give, trusting that it will bring some goodness to the world. As our dear Maribel Crable used to say, if you think you're too small to make a difference, try sleeping with a a mosquito. Just to be clear, that was not Maribel. That was Dalai Lama. we have been working at it. The Creation Care Committee is going strong. And our current committee is, can you all stand? June and Ethan, Gaiman Dean, Dan Weinhold, Kate Good, Aubrey and Tyler, and me. And did I miss anybody? Thank you. I also want to take this chance to hold up the Mennonite Creation Care Network, which I, which I served on for six years. This network is the Creation Care Conscience of the Mennonite Church USA. They make recommendations to the denomination, offer resources, connect churches who are actively caring for creation. Part of the grant money to help with the cost of the electric car charging stations that we now have in our parking lot came from Mennonite Creation Care Network. Shannon includes their um, monthly newsletter in our church news to make it easier for us to connect with that good work. We Anabaptist Christians have a heritage as peacemakers and of stepping out as political witnesses. We believe in justice and peace for all creatures. The drumbeat of the Bible tells us to care for widows, orphans, immigrants, and all of creation. How can we be silent?
1: To discuss my relationship to God through nature, we have to go back to the beginning, at least of my life. For as long as I can remember, every Sunday afternoon after church was spent with my family in the outdoors on one of the many trails that lie within a two-hour drive from the epicenter of my life, East Petersburg, Pennsylvania. It was what you could call... Church 2.0, a space where I could rely on finding peace, quiet, clean air, and mental relief from the everyday stresses of life, especially as an introverted kid living with type 1 diabetes. Although I didn't always appreciate these excursions as a kid, this habit of my parents instilled in me a profound respect and love for God's creation. It's one of the threads that has become woven into the tapestry of my identity as an advocate, environmentalist, activist, and child of God. My deep love for spending time outdoors has only grown in the past few years. As I've matured and developed into a socially, politically, and environmentally aware young woman, my need to escape into nature to hit the reset button has only become more clear and urgent. However, my diagnosis in February 2001 comes at odds with this passion for nature and environmental advocacy. As I mentioned, I live with type 1 diabetes, a chronic incurable disease that dominates my waking hours and sometimes my sleeping ones too. It demands that I always plan ahead and be ready for every potential health outcome as an active and adventurous 24-year-old. I've been living with type 1 diabetes for 18 years now, but when I say living, I really mean thriving. While physical activity in the outdoors requires me to plan ahead and be meticulously in tune with my body and blood glucose levels, it also provides ample opportunities for me to discover my own strength, resilience, and grit in the face of physical challenges in the outdoors. From summiting a 14,000 foot peak in Colorado to exploring remote underground lava caves in Iceland, to simply commuting home from Ephrata on my bicycle, a journey of 16 solo miles. In each of these physically and mentally challenging situations, I build confidence in my own capacity and decision-making abilities. I feel true to the human whom God has created me to be. And so... These experiences in God's creation are spaces of spiritual empowerment, equipping, refreshing, and energizing me to live out my call to be the hands and feet of Jesus in a broken and climate-disrupted world. I'd like to share a disclaimer and two basic assumptions before I dive into my suggestions, how we as a group of God's people can address climate injustice and work towards an environment where all of God's children can thrive. First, I still feel like a newcomer to this community. My spouse, Andrew, and I have only been worshiping here regularly during the past year or so. As such, I'm grateful for your grace and your patience as I suggest ways we might work together for climate justice. Second, the climate justice conversation is not about shaming individuals for their actions, especially those with fewer resources to make environmentally friendly lifestyle changes. Instead, the conversation should be directed towards holding those in power accountable for the ways that they've been upholding a destructive system that is destroying creation. We must question, confront, and change the system so that we might make it easier for all people and institutions to adopt environmentally regenerative practices. Third, we must acknowledge that indigenous, black, and brown communities have been and continue to be on the front lines of the struggle for climate justice, fighting for clean air and water, for example. Marginalized communities, including these, are already faced with the brunt of climate injustice and are disproportionately affected by the destruction of our home, God's creation. Our job as a faith community is to advocate for and highlight these vulnerable voices in the climate change conversation. So I've managed to narrow my suggestions down to five things. First, the most fun option, if you are able, ride your bike more often instead of driving your car. I promise you'll be happier, healthier, and decrease your carbon emissions. Taking the bus is also a great option, and I'm happy to talk about how easy it is to get around using Lancaster's existing active infrastructure, active transportation infrastructure. Second, choose more plant-based options when it comes to planning meals, both as individuals and as gathered people. Meat consumption, especially that of beef, has a huge impact on carbon emissions in the U.S. I challenge each of you for your next small group gathering or congregational potluck to serve a completely vegetarian or vegan meal. I promise you'll be fine without meat. I've been a vegetarian for three years now, and I haven't withered away yet. Third, As Jim Antal suggests in his book, Climate Church, Climate World, take worship services outdoors more often to connect to nature more fully and praise our creator as a community immersed in God's handiwork. Fourth, as individuals and as administrators in your own spheres of influence, I challenge you to consider ways you might avoid printing excess papers and emails. For example, I'm currently reading off my iPhone instead of a printed piece of paper. Lastly, we must advocate for a healthier planet. That might include calling or emailing your elected officials to express your support of more stringent carbon emission regulations or of increasing bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure in Lancaster County and Lancaster City. Even if you're not comfortable yet to call your congressperson or senator, consider how you might advocate for God's creation through a simple conversation with a friend or colleague. Storytelling is powerful in changing perspectives and motivating changed behavior. If they're not easily convinced, your story might at the very least make them think a little harder about the topic. So, like I've just done with you, tell your story about how God's creation inspires, empowers, and equips you, and you may shift others' perspectives or actions toward a more just and peaceful world as we work together for climate justice.
2: When I was a kid, in Kenya, I had a pet rabbit named Gandalf, along with other pets, such as a cat named FC, for fat cat, a hamster named Puff, a chicken named Charlie. We lived on the campus of Roslyn Academy, about half hour's drive from Nairobi City, the capital. My dad helped me build a rabbit hutch for Gandalf. He was a large white rabbit with a black ring around his nose and black paws. His rabbit hutch was spacious and clean. However, I knew how much he loved the freedom of hopping around on the grass, eating whatever he pleased. So I let him out to run every day. I made a ramp up to the door in his hutch and taught him how to hop back inside when I called him. While he was out of his cage, I would hang out with him. Sometimes I'd lie down so I could watch his jaw moving as he munched up close. I knew exactly which grasses he loved and which he ignored. I can still picture in my mind just how his mouth moved, what the munching sounded like, and how completely calm I felt when I was with him. During this time, my mind, body, and spirit was at ease. I took in the colors and sounds from the village on the other side of the valley I sat, absorbed the sun, looked at the, looked at the sky, sometimes I played with clay, and I hung out with my rabbit. Gandalf opened the door for me to simply be in the moment. I delighted in roaming barefoot around the Roslyn campus, sitting in the jacaranda tree, which bloomed into soft purple flowers, which I sometimes collected for Gandalf, the brilliant flame trees, the busy weaver birds. I knew and experienced Roslyn like it was part of my own body. The belonging was that deep. But I did not see this as something spiritual. I had been taught that spirituality had to do with our Sunday trip to Nairobi Baptist Church or the missionary family gatherings at the Mennonite Guesthouse called Menno Meetings. Spirituality was Jesus, the Bible, relationships with people, conversations about theology, So I failed to see it as important important or linked to spirituality or God. At one point, I remember distinctly deciding to step away from my extraordinary connection with animals as a response to the human suffering I was seeing around me in East Africa. Who can spend time caring about animals when people are dying? But my love for the natural world continued despite my beliefs. Outdoors was always where I felt at home. One of my first backpacking expeditions was in Kenya when I returned immediately after graduating from high school here in Lancaster. A friend of mine and I decided to climb Mount Kenya carrying all of our own gear going without guides. It was a trip filled with many adventures including hiking past a herd of elephants and encountering a Cape buffalo. Of course, that was back in the day when I felt invincible, and my lack of fear in the moment actually helped us. Having survived the Cape Buffalo who graciously and mysteriously decided not to charge us, I felt confident stepping into the wilderness in North America, which seemed somewhat less wild, even in black bear and mountain lion country. So I took the opportunity to be in the wilderness whenever possible. When I was a student at the University of California in Santa Cruz, I had the opportunity to spend extended time in the wilderness through a program called the Sierra Institute. I spent two months in the backcountry as a student, and the following year, I spent one month as a teacher's assistant. It's hard to put to words what happens to a person when spending this much time in the wilderness. It is so profound. For the first time since moving back from Kenya, it had been seven years since then, by then, I experienced feeling home. Really home. Connected. Belonging again. I experienced my senses opening up. I woke up to how small I am in this vast world. How small and dependent. Dependent on so many things beyond myself for my life to continue. Air. Water, food from plants and animals, the sun, trees, fire, the small group of humans I was with. From this awareness arose a profound gratitude. And now, here, a number of years later, I am at Fiddle Creek Dairy, where Tim and I have dug in our heels and held on despite all odds. We are rooted by a vision of learning how to live in the ways of reciprocity, where we nourish and tend to what sustains our lives. But this vision alone would not have given me the strength to persist through floods, poverty, illness. Literally, the challenges have been daunting. The stamina has come from the deep nourishment I receive on a daily basis from living in a natural setting like this. From the gratitude I feel when the eagles and red-tailed hawks circle overhead. Or when a great-horned owl landed on a tree branch next to me in the woods in the middle of the morning. Or when the children and I watched a cicada hatching out of its exoskeleton. The gratitude I feel when the clouds finally burst with rain after a completely dry month. Or the grass in the meadow begins to grow again after receiving the rain. Or when the sun comes out for the first time in months or when I plunge under the cold water of our creek on a hot day or harvest a plentiful crop of sweet potatoes. We are in love with this place and so excited about how much more there is to learn. The depths of studying birdsong, the nuances of managing healthy pasture, how much more there is to learn about trees and native medicinal plants and soil. It's endless and energizing. I've been going to what naturalist John Young calls a sit spot every day. It's pretty much exactly what I used to do when I was hanging out with my rabbit Gandalf as a kid. I go and sit by the same tree, open up my senses, listen to the layers of birdsong, feel the breezes, watch the leaves, notice, connect, be at home, belong. But this time, unlike when I was a child, I know that what I'm doing is a form of prayer, and I know that this connection is the core of my spiritual life. Last, moon, last full moon, I was standing out by the barn, that was just a few weeks ago, waiting for my bandmates to show up so we could rehearse. I was watching the moonlight slowly travel up the field as it rose, when I heard something over at the edge of the upper woods by the tree where my sit spot is. At first, I thought it was a cat. But then the sound deepened and changed. Eventually, I realized that I was listening to a coyote. Now, a chorus of coyotes howling as the full moon rose. I couldn't stop smiling, the thrill of life moving through me. I'd just been reading John Young's book called Coyote's Guide to Connecting with Nature. (laughs) And I've never heard coyotes around here this close before. My bandmates arrived, and we sang with the coyotes. Then I ran to tell Tim and the boys to come out and listen as well. It was a party. It was a sacred moment. So, what about climate change in our church? I have a few thoughts here, and we'll mention one briefly now. I don't have time to get into this to fully explain it, so if it sounds interesting to you, or brings up questions, please be in touch with me because I'd love to discuss it more. But I've been envisioning the idea of a church community supported agriculture, adding on to the CSA model, the CCSA. The church community would be able to step outside our current food system and into a model of reciprocity by supporting the farmers within the community who would in turn provide food for the community. But like I said, this requires a longer discussion at another time. Mostly, my hope for us is that whatever we engage with in response to climate change will be rooted in deep love for the Earth and a sense of gratitude rather than guilt and another thing on the should-do list. I wonder what kind of collective vision would reveal itself if everyone took 15 to 20 minutes a day to be in your own sit spot wherever you live, to connect with the natural world, and thus ourselves and God? What would our actions look like if they were rooted in specific relationships rather than broad concepts? What would our vision be if we were inspired to learn more about the specific birds, plants, soils, animals, and waters that surround our lives?